Lord a hand praise again. Amen. Man, you may be seated this morning. If you have a little one that would like to go to Children's Church, now is their time. Miss Kim is at her post, and she is ready to serve in that capacity. And while they're making their way out, let me encourage you, take out a copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is where we are. We can started a journey last week into this Old Testament book, this book of prophecy, if you will, the prophet Habakkuk. We refer to it as a minor prophet, not because of its less importance, but simply because it is shorter than, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah, which would be one of the major prophets, the big parts of the Old Testament. But the, the, the writer Habakkuk is unique in the sense that he's dialoguing with God. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament would, would hear from God and then go dialogue with the people. But Habakkuk is different because him and God are in dialogue. He's representing the people to God and, and he's recording this conversation that takes place. And today in the text where we are in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 6 through 20, we'll simply be looking at this theme of justice. In fact, I've entitled the sermon simply, Justice is Served. It has come. Justice has, has been delivered. And, you know, built into our moral fabric, we like it when justice wins out. We want the good guy to win. We want the heroes to succeed. We celebrate as the world did when, when uh, Hitler and Nazi Germany were destroyed. We, we had a sense of, 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 of celebration and yet solemnness when, when Osama bin Laden was brought to justice. We, we want criminals to be caught and captured, even in our entertainment. We like it when the prince rides in and takes on the evil king and delivers the people or the, or the cowboy shows up to fix the crooked sheriff in the town. We, we want victory. And, and all of us have grunted when Mel Gibson put on his kilt and rode with a sword in Braveheart. Ladies, if that don't stir your heart, you're in trouble. All right, that's good stuff. But the idea is, is that we, we want justice to be served. Well, in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is struggling with this topic. You know, when you study the book of Habakkuk, it's only three chapters, but man, it is deep. In the first chapter, he's dealing with this idea of evil. Why does evil get to run loose? God, when are you going to fix evil? When are you going to punish what's bad? Why does it seem that the wicked keep prospering and those who are trying to do good seem to be keep getting crushed? And so he, he jumps in the first chapter at this very big, huge question of what do we do with evil? We looked at that last Week. And then God says, well, I see evil. In fact, particularly in the story, Habakkuk is talking about Judah, God's people. The kingdom of Israel had become so wicked uh, that they were being led by an evil king and, and Habakkuk had, had enough of it. And he basically said, God, when are you going to fix this evil? And God answers him and says, well, I'm going to fix it. You're not going to believe what I'm going to do. Just watch and see. In fact, if you read Habakkuk chapter one, he says, watch and see, you won't believe it. And what does he do? He takes the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, which is next door across the geography just a little bit, a wicked king, a terrible king, and he, and he raises him up and he lets him conquer Judah and crush Judah. And so rightly so, now think for just a moment, Habakkuk says, Lord, Judah's falling apart. Evil's running rampant. When are you going to fix it? And God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this super wicked nation that's pagan and I'm going to send them in to conquer you. Say what? That's not how I saw that coming. That, that's not how I turned the page on that story. That, that's not what I expected. And so rightly so, Habakkuk has some anxiety. God, are you sure? This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem just. This doesn't seem like the right plan. 
And then we get this verse, if you look in your Bible at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, you'll find it there at the very end. It says, but the righteous live by faith, or faith in him. And so here's ultimately where it concludes last week where we ended, and that's simply this. Habakkuk, I'm God. I'm working. I'm over all things. Trust me. Trust me. Have faith in me. I'm going to fix this. Have faith in me. In me. Now, here's the problem. If the story were to end there, we're kind of back at the same question. If you look at the first verse of chapter 1, it literally says, How long, O Lord? How long will the wicked prosper? Well, he was sad because the wicked in Judah were prospering, and now the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, which will become one of the most wicked kingdoms known to history, it will come in and crush them. And so God says, I'm doing something. So we're kind of back to the same question of, okay, now how long will they get to be wicked? How long will they stand on the throne? When will justice finally be served? Well, in Habakkuk chapter 2, you have your copy of God's Word open. He serves it up. One of the great mercies of God to us is that He lets us from time to time see the future. He gives us glimpses of the future. And in fact, in this very moment, when Habakkuk feels overwhelmed that the Babylonians are going to be worse than what Judah is happening right now, when it seems like it's going to get more out of control, he wants to know when it's going to be delivered. And here's what God does. God shows him past Babylon. He lets him see the future. Now, brothers and sisters, in the Christian faith, seeing the future has always been important. I don't mean makeshift prophecies of wobbling men. I mean the Word of God that shows us how it's going to be. Because I, let, let me say this so that we get the full picture. No matter what tomorrow holds, I've read the end of the book, it's going to be okay. That's what I mean. That God always gives the church the future so that we can hold together. And so in this book, he's showing Habakkuk that Babylon will get their justice. They will have their day. Let me show you what I mean. He does it by giving five woe statements, as in these are condemnations. Let's quickly just survey them to get our feet wrapped around it, our hands wrapped around it. Excuse me, we don't want to use our feet. Verse 6, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. Verse 12, woe to him who builds town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, who pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Verse 19, woe to him who says to the wooden thing, awake to silent stone arise. Can this teach. There is a series of five woe statements. He's describing the wickedness of Babylon and he's saying, God will judge it. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to understand that we're fixing to walk through a history lesson of Babylon. We're going to walk through what God said will happen to them. And it's already happened because you don't know about Babylon anymore. They're off the face of the earth. They're gone. That kingdom was crushed. God fulfilled his promise. So, so here's what happens. Here's the, here's the problem. Here's the struggle we got to do. We got to bridge 3,000-year-old history of Babylon to 2020 here in Selma, right? In Dallas County, in your life. We got to figure out how to, how to bring that bridge. And so here's what I want you to see from this text. There are four, four kind of beautiful things I just want to quickly rattle off to you that I want you to see from this text when it comes to God and justice. And they're simply this I'm going to give them to you quickly. Number one, I want you to see quickly that God sees all evil and will punish it. God does not miss anything. When we walk through this passage, you will see over and over and over and over that everything the king of Babylon did, God remembered, wrote it down, made a record, and brought him to justice over it. Number two, God will end evil. It will come to an end. 
Evil is not everlasting. Satan is a created being. He is under the reign of God. He's under the rule of God at the time, at the present. He has much freedom among this broken world, but he will be crushed and cast away forever. Only good will reign forever. Evil will have its day. It will come to a conclusion. Number three, when this happens, when God judges, remember this is what we're going to see, when God judges, it's for his glory. When the just God drops his righteous gavel, it will bring him glory. And then finally, and here's the one I want you to see we're going to end with today, and that's simply this. The only shield from the judgment of God poured out on sin and sinners is Christ. Let me say it again so that we understand and resonate where we're going. The only shield for the judgment of God poured out on sin is Christ. Now would you pray with me, Father? Help us now as we study this prophetic word from history. But yet we understand, God, it is your Bible, it is your word, which means it is everlasting, it is true, it is for us today. You ask us to read it, to meditate on it, and so this morning, Father, we don't want to be hasty. We don't want to just mark the box. We want to, we want to come to your holy scripture and we want to hear from you. And so God, help us. Help us as we walk through this text to see how holy you are and how sin will not stand in your presence and how you will punish evil. And God, when we get to the very end, I pray that each and every one of us will find our security in Christ and Christ alone. That God, he alone can guard us from the wrath and the judgment that is due upon sin because of your holiness. Now, God, give our minds attention Give our hearts uh, openness, Father. Give our, give our ears able to listen. Uh, and Father, may the, may the antiquity of Babylon jump into the eternity of today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are five woe statements, so we're going to walk through this passage and we're going to see why God will bring justice on the Babylonians. So number one, he simply says, woe to the cheat. Woe to the one who cheat. God will judge the cheaters. He will judge those who cheat. He will judge those who build with ill-gotten gain. Look with me at verse 6. This is kind of verse 6, the beginning is kind of an introduction to the whole passage. God is speaking. But notice what he says. Shall not all these take up? He's talking about all the nations that the Babylons have conquered. And so even small little Judah, which Babylon will eventually conquer. Uh, all of these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say. Now, the reason why I like that verse is because it simply says this. It says, God has seen how the Babylonians have mistreated every nation that it's put its foot on. That every, every place it's trotted, it's mistreated them. God's seen that. And on the day of Babylon's judgment, all of those nations will be in the crowd and able to cheer at the judgment that's happening to Babylon. Why do I like that? Because, brothers and sisters, evil will have its day and right will win out. Justice will be served. God is keeping a record. And when you've been mistreated and you've been crushed and you've been harmed for walking the way of God, remember, there is coming a day where God will have his justice and you will be able to witness it. You will see it. You will be there and you will know God is on his Throne. Now let us look at these woe statements. Here's what Babylon had done. Number one, they had been a cheater. They had cheated people out of their wealth and their power and their land. They had pillaged and plundered. Look with me at verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Thieves, right? And loads himself with pledges. 
This idea here is debt loaning. They have conned the people out of their money. They have swindled them. They are the title loan of, of, of 3,000 years ago, right? They are, the, they are the wicked, broken pawn shop, scamming. Not all pawn shops are wicked. I bought a lot of guns there. Let's chill. The idea is, is that they're the, they're the ones that are scamming people. They're harming people. They're hurting people. And why are they doing this? To build up their own wealth. They are cheaters. God says, I, I, I see it. I see it. Now, now, I want you to notice what happens. Look at verse 7. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because, they have pl- because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to earth and the cities and all that dwell in them. Notice what God is doing now. He's keeping a record of all of the sin that Babylon has done through cheating. Every person that King Nebuchadnezzar has cheated, has swindled, has stolen from, has plundered, he's kept a record of every one of those events. And he says, just as you plundered them, they're going to plunder you. Brothers and sisters, we have here in God's divine plan, reap what you sow, an eye for an eye, poetic justice, if you will. You're going to get complete and perfect judgment. This is how you behaved. Therefore, this is what you will get. You plundered, you will be plundered. You stole, it will be stolen from you. Justice will be equal when God judges. It will be right when he brings the judgment onto Babylon. They were cheaters, and they will be held accountable. Now, one of the reasons why I bring this out so clearly is because think about Think about Babylon marching across the known map. First, they they conquer the Assyrians, and then they work and take over Egypt, and they take over the northern part of the kingdom, which was Israel, and then they come down and crush Judah, and so they're they're taking... Imagine the number of people they stole from, they plundered, they hurt. Think about the peasant they kicked on the street and took her begging change. I mean, there's a lot of record-keeping here. And yet God says in these verses... Every one of those you plundered will plunder you. You know why that grips my heart? Because it reminds me that the holy God sees every single thing. Oh, mercy. He sees everything. Nothing will not be accounted for. Everything will be seen. He knows exactly what they have done, and he will judge them in like kind. But I want you to notice a verse here before we leave this point. Look at verse 7. Notice how the judgment will be. It says in verse 7, He will, will not your debtors suddenly arise. Now, if we read that, we might think this means that they're going to come quickly. That the first time Nebuchadnezzar swindles somebody, suddenly he's going to be crushed. But that's just not true. History would tell us it's not true. He reigned for some time. It would be a while before Cyrus and the Persians would conquer him. And so he, it wasn't sudden. It wasn't around the corner. But, but I want you to see the word and the idea of the, of the long history of the eternity of God. And I want you to see it in two ways. One, we have here that there will be no warning of the judgment of God. The word sudden here simply means that when God decides that he's had enough of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians cheating people, he will judge them. And there won't be warning. It'll be sudden. Now, brothers and sisters, does that not sound like the return of Christ? For the day of the Lord might be secret to us, but we know it's sudden. He will come like a thief in the night. The trumpet will sound. The sky will split. The Lord will return. It might be today. It might be tomorrow. It might be 100 years from now. But for us, when it appears, it will be sudden. It will be on that 
moment. It is around the corner. And might I submit to you that it's closer today than it was yesterday? And if we live to tomorrow, it will be even closer. So let's be clear about this. When the Lord decides to judge, it will feel and be sudden. It will come. Now this should scare us in the sense of we want to live with a readiness. We want to live on our tippy toes, anticipate, tippy toes, anticipating. There we go. We want to live anticipating that the Lord is coming. At any moment, at any time, at any place, He's coming. It is sudden when His judgment will fall. They were cheaters. Number two, woe to the greedy. They will be judged because they were greedy. Look with me at verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now let me tell you what's happening here. King Nebuchadnezzar thought that if he plundered enough, that if he got enough of uh, money, if he had enough of the map around him, then he could build his walls and fill his coffers with gold and his destiny and lineage would be untouchable. He would be safe and secure. He was greedy so that he could pile up enough stuff so that no one would be able to get to him or his sons or his legacy. He thought greed would bring him security, posterity, prosperity, and health and wealth and strength and all along the way. And so he's going about gathering things up so that he can try to build his own strength. But notice the irony of the text. Look at it again. Verse 11, he's trying to fortify himself. In verse 9, it says that's a reference to a bird. When a bird wants to be safe, it builds his nest way up high. He's trying to build himself into a safe place. He's trying to find security. But, But notice what the Lord says in verse 11. The stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Literally, if these walls could talk, is what it says. You're building by being greedy. You're piling up thinking this is going to be safety and security. You're pursuing everything you can to amass everything you want, and it somehow buffets you from the throes of life, and you think this will be safe, but you keep laying your walls down, and that'll be what falls on your head. Now think about that for just a moment as it translates to us. How often do we put our hands to the plow thinking, boy, if I just had this and that and this, I'll be set, I'll be secure, I'll be safe. Boy, if I had, if I had this amount of money, if I had this job, if I had this title, if I had this career, if I had this status on social media, if I could just grab this, boy, I'd be safe and secure and set for life. Oh, how does the pride bring the fall? Because all of those things that we think will make us secure and safe, ultimately, here's what greed does, and here's what it did to Nebuchadnezzar. If I build enough, I will be safe and secure, and my legacy will go on forever. And so ultimately, here's what greed was doing. God, I don't need your safety, your protection, or your plans. I'll just amass my own way. I don't even have to trust you, Lord. I'll just do it myself. I mean, if I got enough money in the bank, I'll, I'll be good to eat anytime I want. If I got a good enough health plan, I can see the best doctors in the country. If I have enough family around me, I'll I'll be secure from any of the problems of the world. If I just have that dream house on the hill, then, then I can go in and close the door and the world will leave me alone. And the pursuit of greed will be the downfall of those who pursue it. Notice what he says. If these walls could talk, they will bring you down. Number three, woe to the murderer. 
Not only are they cheats and they're greedy, they're bloodthirsty. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the Lord will be filled, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar tried to do was build great cities. One of the ways in which we show we are the pinnacle of God's creation and that we have fully subdued the world is in our cities. We collect together as humans, and in our cities, we have everything at our touch. It is, the, it is the, the purpose. We drive into a city, and we see the great buildings, the great skyscrapers, the great bridges, the railways, and the trains. We see the software in the technology store. We see everything we need in the city. The city is the pinnacle of man controlling and dem- ruling over the world. And so Nebuchadnezzar tried to make a name for himself by building great cities, by, by showing his power and his strength, but he did it on the backs of slaves. He did it on the backs of crushing those. He did it on the back of killing other people. Listen to me now. Let me be very clear. Any society that's built on crushing the weak will have judgment to pay. And he simply says, you've built all of this on the blood of people. And notice what God says about these great cities. Remember the irony in all of these? You cheated. You plundered. So they're going to plunder you. You tried to build these houses of security. The house is going to fall on you. You try to build this city out of blood, and you want this city to be secure and last forever. But notice the irony. What happens to the city? It's going to be on fire. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts the people labor, merely for fire, and nations weary themselves. You built this great city, and it's going to burn to the ground. Everything that the, the Babylonians pursued, God's going to use to judge them. It'll be in their, eye for an eye. Reap what you sow in like kind. And so they get it back. But I want to draw your attention to verse 14 before we leave this idea here. And it's simply this. Verse 14 is set as almost like the middle of the whole passage. And it's really one of the pinnacle verses in the passage, both it and verse 20, because it, it gives us a glimpse into why God is doing this to the Babylonians. Notice what it says. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He simply says, here's why God will bring justice on the Babylonians and why God will bring justice on all sin for his glory. You see, sin and shame and evil as it runs, it, it, it distorts God's glory. It shadows and shades the perfect glory of God. But there's coming a day where he will fully judge sin and he will cast it away and there will be no more shadow, no more turning, no more shade, no more distortion, no more perversion. It will be full on glory of God. And so when God punishes evil, it is for his glory. I can give it to you in biblical illustrations. When Moses led the children of Israel across the Red Sea as God had split it open and the Egyptians rolled into that sea and then the water came crushing down, judging the Egyptians in their sin and washed them away, the glory of the Lord was renowned in his power and his goodness. When David stood up to that wicked giant Goliath and said, you may have a sword and armor, but I have the Lord. And that giant fell thud to the ground. The glory of God was displayed when evil was struck down. When Jesus was laid in the tomb, it felt like evil was winning. It felt like evil would conquer the day. But on the third day, when Jesus came back from the grave, crushing Satan once and for all, evil had its day and now the glory of God is reigning. See in the text that whenever God judges evil, it reminds us of his glory. 
It is good that he would do this. Woe to the murderers. Number four, woe to the drunk and perverted. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You have your feel of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Here's what the king of Babylon did. As long as he conquered land, he brought with him his fleshly, pagan, sinful ways. The Bible says there his uncircumcised way. That means he lacked the fear of the Lord and the Lord's moral countenance and the Lord's commandments. And so therefore he brought with him all of the fleshly desires of sin and he spread it about. And it wasn't so much that he did it. Now I want you to notice this because this is a good life lesson. Listen to me now. Sin loves company. One of the, one of the, the depravities of sin is that when you find yourself tangled in sin, you want other people to join you to somehow numb the pain of your sinfulness. And so we, we bring people along with us. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Look at the text. It's, it's gross. He forces the Israelites to become drinkers and drunkards. Why? So that they'll be stripped to their nakedness. Now we're talking sexual sin and perversion. And so what is he doing? He's literally saying, I want to live by my flesh. I want drunkenness and perversion to be the standard. And I want to bully people and shame people and mock them until they join me in this Sin. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day and age where drunkenness and nakedness are bullying people into all kinds of sin. And so he says, this is what you've done. You've brought this along this way. Now, let us speak for just a moment about drunkenness. The Bible is very clear. We are never to be drunk. Why is that? Because Satan wants to kill you. He wants to kill your marriage, your family, your job, your health, everything about you. Satan is a, roar, a destroying line wishing to... He wants to destroy you. And brothers and sisters, you alone cannot stand up to Satan. You are not strong enough. You can't bind him. You can't command him. You are a fallen, broken, sinful thing. But the power of God through Christ and the spirit that lives in you and the armor of God, which is found in the word of God, allows you to go to battle against him. And as Romans says in Romans 8... Nothing will stand against us. But listen to me now. I would never climb in no arena with a roaring lion drunk. I'd go in full sober and full alert and ready to fight. You find yourself in drunkenness on a regular basis and you cannot keep from sinning because your faculties are diminished. And what will happen? The same thing that happened to Babylon. Drunkenness leads to sexual perversion and fleshly sin. Your inhibitions are lowered and you move into sin. And Babylon had become a, a, a beacon of debauchery. And so they said, I'm bringing judgment. I'm bringing judgment. Now notice with me just quickly, because I want you to see that it goes a little further in the same passage. Verse 16, notice what the Lord says. Remember, they love drinking and getting drunk. And they love shaming people and perversion and nakedness. So what does the Lord say their judgment is? Look what he says. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. I'm going to give you something to drink. It'll be the judgment, the wrath. Uh, here, you, you want to go about being drunk and shameful and lost in your sinful ways and acting like you don't know the Lord? That's fine. Here comes a drink for you. The wrath of God. And notice what he says. And utter shame will come upon you. You cause people to get drunk and be shameful. I'm going to drink. My cup of wrath will be poured on you and you'll be laid out shameful in front of me, broken and sinful. God will judge in like kind and he doesn't miss a thing. 
doesn't miss a thing. Their drunkenness and their power hungry and their fleshly desires had gotten so out of control that if you look up at the rest of verse uh, 16, it says the violence done to Lebanon. Lebanon was a beautiful country with cedar trees. And, and the context here is basically Nebuchadnezzar clear cut it. He had no respect for God's creation. It would be like somebody bulldozing Yellowstone, right? We'd be up in arms. And this is, I know some of you are foresters. You'd be like, well, I'd be a lot of money. No, it's wrong, right? And then if you notice the next sentence, it says in the destruction of the beast, they had no care for animals. They treated them poorly. So their fleshly, drunken, wild desires, whatever they put their mind to, they destroyed it. They mistreated animals. They mistreated the trees. They mistreated the earth. They mistreated people's bodies. They mistreated alcohol. And God said, I'm going to give you something to drink. He's judging them. And then finally, I want you to see the last woe, and that's simply this. Woe to the idol worshiper. Here we find the sole purpose of why Babylon is so far off. Here we find the reason for their sin. Here we find the answer to the problem. Notice it comes with kind of a rebuke to start with. It's a funny rebuke. It's, it's really kind of a, a sarcastic line. It says, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. He basically says, how good is your God if you made it with your own hands? How's that going to do? How's that going to save your soul? And in fact, he goes on, look at verse 19. Woe to him who asked the wooden thing awake to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it. He says, look at Babylon. They worship power. They worship idols. They worship whatever they want, and they fashion them and make them gods. And yet on the day of judgment, they're going to look at that God, no matter how beautiful they think it is, and it won't be able to say a word to help them. How foolish it is for us to think that the things we make with our hands will rescue us on the day of judgment. Now, I know what you're thinking, Brother Corey. You can come to my house this afternoon. In fact, we'd love to have you. We've got a pot roast in the crock pot. See me after church, by the way. Um, you can come to my house this afternoon, and you can search my whole house, and you will not find one golden calf that we pray to. We've never melted down any of our rings. We've never melted any silver. We don't have a pile of stones. There's no Buddha statue in the corner, right? There's, there's no uh, uh, something of uh, incense burning where we work. We don't worship idols. Oh, brothers and sisters. We certainly worship the things we go after with our hands. We worship our careers and our jobs and our finances and our families and our hobbies. We worship our identity and our status and our social setting and how many likes and how many people on Facebook wished us happy birthday on our birthday. And some of y'all missed it. Mine was yesterday. I know who you are. We, we worship the things that our hands produce. And God says, listen now, spend all your life worshiping those things. And when it matters, ask those things to speak on your account. And they won't be breath in them. It won't do you any good. It won't get you anywhere. But, but remember, eye for an eye, reap what you sow. Notice how God's going to judge that. Listen to what he says. Verse 20. But the Lord in his holy temple, ain't that interesting? It's not some wooden thing on your mantle. It's God in the holy temple. It's not something you piled up in your bank account. This is God in his holy temple, right? He's in a different location, but, but notice what he says. Let all the earth keep silent before him. God's got something to say. God's going to speak. God's going to judge. You call on your idols to rescue you, and when they don't speak from your mantelpiece and your bank account and your status, when they don't help you, listen from God from his holy temple because he's about to speak. An eye for an eye. Just like God, he will do in like kind. So here's the question. 
Here's where we've got to take the sermon from antiquity, from history, from, from Babylon. Yeah, we've, we've touched on some things on the way. I've, I've called you out for being greedy. I've got on you for being idol worshipers. We certainly don't want any of you to be drunk or perverted. I, I've dealt with those things. But, but, but how does this affect us today? The five woes of Babylon, how, how do they mess with me? How do they help me? Because I know what you're thinking. Well, pastor, I'm really not a drunk. I don't shame myself. I don't walk around in the street naked. I've never asked anybody else to run down the street naked. Well, that time in college, but we ain't going to talk about that. The idea is uh, I, I, I've never done those things. I'm not a murderer. I've never murdered anybody. I've never really tried to cheat anybody, right? Oh, brothers and sisters, listen. When we read this story, we can look at Babylon and think, oh, God, get them. Get them. And then we just simply roll on our Bible over to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus starts to take the law of the Old Testament and apply it to our heart. And here's what he says. I'm going to give you two examples. The first one is found, both are found in chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. You have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder. I hadn't, Lord. I'm not like Babylon. I've never murdered anybody. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now skip down to that last sentence. You fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Uh-oh. Wait a minute. Let me give you one more. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, 28. Pastor, I've never really done anything sexually perverted, I promise. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Uh Uh-oh. You see, brothers and sisters, let me be very clear with you. When we read the story, we want God to get Babylon until we realize we're more like Babylon than we are holy God. You see, here's the thing about justice. I love it when it's served on you. I'm not so keen when it's turned back on me. I, I want God to punish everything that's evil. Just, Lord, don't look at me. And yet when I read this passage of Scripture, you know what I see? God keeps a record of everything, every single thing. And we, we're fickle with justice. We, we like it when it's on other people, but we don't want it on us. And in fact, we want to paint ourselves in this picture of, well, God loves us, and, and I'm not really that bad. I mean, I'm not Hitler. I'm not Babylon. I, I, I'm not Stalin. I'm not a, a terrorist. Like, I, I'm different. Lord, I, the Lord's going to be good to me. Brothers and sisters, he is a holy God, and every blemish is sin against him. Just this week, I'll give you a modern example. I'll show you a picture of Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers is the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. Very successful quarterback. A very intelligent young man. A young man, he's my age. Very intelligent guy. He's, he's uh, very inept in, in things of the world. He grew up in a Christian home. In fact, he will tell you that he went to church every Sunday with his family, and then on Mondays in high school, he went to a Bible uh, study for athletes. And, and even in that Bible study, he recalls as a high schooler going to Tijuana and Mexico and building houses for people on mission trip. I mean, he walked in a, in a religious world. And then he said as he grew up and as he began to read and as he began to explore and study other religions, study other things, he began to find himself less and less attractive to religion and more and more spiritual. I don't even know what that means. He found himself distancing from the God of the Bible. And ultimately, the reason why he left the God of the Bible, and I'll give it to you on the screen. Here's the quote that he gave this week in a podcast interview. I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. What type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all of this? Now, let's be honest. He scratched something there. I mean, I mean, part of me wants to say, yeah, how can, how can God do this? How, how can God 
send people to hell. I thought God was love. I thought God loved all his people. I thought his love was steadfast. For God so loved the world. How can he do this? Well, brothers and sisters, here's the problem with this statement. I bet that if I were to sit down with Aaron Rodgers and begin to discuss the atrocities of Hitler and Babylon and Osama bin Laden and the kidnapper and the sex trafficker and the drug dealer, he would probably agree with me that there ought to be a hell. He would probably agree to me that justice ought to be served. But the problem is, when, when somebody gives a quote like this, you know what they're ultimately saying? I don't want God judging me. I don't want God judging at me. I don't want God looking at me. I'm, I'm, I, I, I want to live in a place where, where God's just a big grandmother that picks up my skint knees, but I don't want to be judged. And so let me say two things as we close. Number one, brothers and sisters, God will judge sin. He will judge sin because God is just. I want a God who's just. I want a God who makes wrong right. But let me say this last thing, and then we're going to close by talking about Jesus, and that's simply this. Do not ever blame God for sinners going to hell. Because when I read Habakkuk chapter 2, I read all the sin that Babylon committed, and I read all the justice that God gave them for their actions. And you want to know why I believe God desires for people not to go to hell? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, will not die, will not go to hell, but have everlasting life. I believe God wants the people to be saved. Oh, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you up. I believe God desires to save people, but sin must be punished. And it must be punished for eternity because when you sin, you sin against the eternal maker. And the only way for justice to be served when you sin against an eternal maker is an eternal punishment. It must balance the scales of justice, and that's the God that I serve. But here's the beauty. Some people read the Old Testament, and they say, well, God must have changed. I mean, you read Habakkuk, and he's smacking people around. You read the story of the Exodus, and, and, the, and the Egyptians are getting washed away in the ocean. I mean, Lord, I can list five or six sinners in my neighborhood ought to get washed away in an ocean. Where are you at? Right? It, it, that was a joke, by the way. My neighbors are really nice people. Um, but the, the idea is, is that, that, that we think God has changed. And I want to be clear with you. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the wrath of God is and will be poured out on sin. And there's only two possible ways in which this will happen. At the very end, when you stand before him, in all of your sin and shame, your greed, your murdering, your lusting, your drunkenness, your cheating, all of the vileness of your idol worship, you will stand before God. And one option is his wrath will be poured out on you for all eternity in hell and you will deserve it. Or the other option, the glorious, wonderful infinite God will look on you and pass over because he laid every bit of that wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, God punished Babylon and he punished our sins. He punished them on the shoulders of our Savior. By his wounds, we are healed. Paul would sum it up this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, we were rebellious, we were Babylon. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, that means made right, we're innocent, we're no longer guilty of our sin. There's no woe statements over our neck. By his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath 
of God. Remember what I told you at the beginning of the sermon? The only way to be shielded from the wrath of God is Christ. It's Christ. That's the glorious truth of God's wrath and mercy colliding together. How can God punish sin and save sinners? At the cross. Where the perfect wrath of God and the perfect mercy and grace and love of God collide. And oh, I'm glad it did. Would you pray with me, Father? We thank you this morning that you have, you have sent Jesus to shield us from the wrath. That we read the story of Babylon and we know you are a God who keeps a record of wrong. You, you see all transgressions. You see all sin. You are the just judge. Nothing will slip by. Nothing will be swept under the rug. <coughs> Father, you will, you will rightly judge every single sin. And there are two possible ways in which you will carry out your judgment. You will lay them on the shoulders of the sinner at the day of judgment. The one who's not come to Christ. The one who will stand with his own idols, with his own greed, with his own sin. The one who will, who will beg and plead. But suddenly, your judgment will fall and you will cast them to the fiery hell forever. And torment will be their eternity because they have sinned against the holy God. And it will be just and it will be right. And it will bring you glory because you are a just judge. But oh Lord, I'm thankful there's another way. I'm thankful that you saw the dilemma. You saw the problem. You saw the fact that we had no way to stand in the midst of your judgment. And you sent your son. You sent your son to climb on our cross, to die our death, to experience your wrath, to be buried in our tomb. You sent your son to do for us what we could not do. Every woe we've ever committed was laid on his shoulders so that we might be made right. Oh God, we thank you. Brothers and sisters, your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Let me ask you this morning, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Are you prepared to stand before God? Are you ready to experience the wrath of God? And remember, He knows everything. Every single sin and transgression, He knows them. Are you ready to give an account? Have you come to Christ? Christ is your only answer. He's your only attorney in the courtroom. You must come to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, you're a believer in Jesus Christ and let us press in on this for just a moment. Brother, sister, God sees. You may not be cast into the fiery hell. You'll be rescued by Jesus' blood. You'll be saved, but, but you'll still stand before him. You'll still give an account. He knows every idle word. He knows every secret sin. He knows what you're doing when no one's looking. Oh, brother, maybe today's the day you confess. You plead before the Lord. You beg a brother or sister for help, for accountability. You be sudden could be even now oh that we would be ready we're going to stand and sing and I'm going to ask you if you would to just respond maybe you need to come pray maybe you need to get saved maybe you need to grab a brother and say help me whatever the case may be I, I hope you'll know that God God is watching and justice will be served Father lead us now as we respond we pray in Jesus name Stand with us as we sing this morning.